Well, good morning, and it is extremely difficult to believe that we have come to the end of this semester. What an incredible time in the Word of the Lord it has been, and I can say that this last week's study has probably been the most difficult of all of them. Um, we understand why this passage is not preached about or taught on very often, do we not? Um, we are unsure exactly when these accounts took place. As we've been working through the judges, we know we've been moving chronologically, and the judges did become weaker and weaker as the people became more and more sinful. But we do know it was somewhere fairly near the beginning because of some of the people mentioned in these accounts. So consequently, it shows us how rapidly we can become depraved and how rapidly we can turn to our own ways and leaning on our own understanding. If you look at the book of Judges, until we've gotten to this point, it's like the big view of what's going on in Israel. But when we come to these last chapters, 17 through 21, it's like zooming in to take a close-up look at what was actually happening in the villages and the individual lives of the people. So let's open our Bibles to Judges chapter 17, and we're going to begin with Micah and the Levite. Now, what do we know about Micah? Micah happened to steal 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. But when he heard she had pronounced a curse on whoever had stolen the money, he quickly returned it, right? <laughs> and she turns the curse into a blessing once she realized it was her son who had been stealing from her. And she says, I will consecrate all of the silver to the Lord. But did she consecrate it all? Oh, no. She took 200 pieces of the silver and had them made into an idol that Micah added to his shrine. He already had a shrine of idols, so he's going to add God, an idol, to his shrine of gods, and he thinks he's doing pretty well, and then all of a sudden a Levite who had actually been serving in Bethlehem is looking for a better deal. He leaves, and so the Levite comes along, and what does Micah do? Oh, this is even better. I'll have a Levite to go with my shrine, and now I know God's going to bless me, right? <laughs> I've got this figured out. Never mind that it was completely contrary to the word of God. But he had created his own religion. And look at verse, thing, verse 13. Then Micah said, now I know the Lord will prosper me, seeing that I have a Levite as a priest, a Levite who was to have been serving in the temple, a Levite now who is serving a false religion. And we're going to see this Levite move further and further and further away from the Lord. Then we move into chapter 18, and there is a tribe of the Israelites, the Danites, who were unable to take the land that had been allotted to them. But were they actually unable or just unfaithful? They were unwilling to do it because they did not believe. It was not up to them to push out the Amorites. It was up to them to claim the land and watch God do it for them. But because of their lack of faith, they were forced into the mountains, into the hill country, and they became like a nomadic tribe. So they're coming through. They send five spies, reminiscent of the 12, right, that went into the promised land, to see if they can find a land where they can relocate, where they can prosper and have crops. And so they come in, and in chapter 18, these Danites are seeking an inheritance for themselves. They hear this Levite, and they think, well, how awesome would it be to have our own priest? So when they go back and say, hey, we found this land, we found this area in Laish, and it's unprotected, and the people are living there peacefully, a cinch for us to take over, right? Not depending upon the Lord, 
totally depending upon themselves. And so then they're going to come back through. They go out to spy out it. And look at verse 18. When these men went into Micah's house and took the graven image, the ephod and household idols and the molten image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? They said to him, be silent. Put your hand over your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? The priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and the household idols and the graven images that they were stealing from the shrine in Micah where he had set up his false religion. And now he's going with the tribe of Israel to set up a false religion in Dan, which would be to their downfall. Then they turned and departed and put the little ones and the livestock and the valuables in front of them. When they had gone some distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the house near Micah's house assembled and overtook the sons of Dan. They cried to the sons of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you've assembled together? He said, You've taken away my gods, which I made, and the priest, and have gone away. And what do I have besides? So how can you say to me, What's the matter with you? The sons of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, or else fierce men will fall upon you, and you will lose your life and the lives of your household. So the sons of Dan went on their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. Then they took what Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and came to Laish, to a people quiet and secure, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and they burned the city with fire." And there was no one to deliver them, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. And it was in the valley, which is near Beth Rahab, and they rebuilt the city and lived in it. They called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their father, who was born in Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. And the sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, or Moses... He and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. Now, what do we know happened to Dan from your study this past week? They are not listed in the tribes of Israel in the book of Revelation. Not only did they move away from God and create their own religion, they moved away from their eternal inheritance, and they are not listed as a tribe that will be in heaven. The Levites started in Bethlehem serving the Lord. He goes and becomes the priest to a man's family, the priest to a tribe that moves completely out of the land allotted to the Israelites, and he too will go down with them. What a warning to us that we can't create a religion that fits with us. But how many times do you hear people say, well, the God that I serve or the God of love would not. They have created their own graven image. They have an idol of who God is, a caricature of the God they want to exist, not the God of Scripture. And we know that we cannot approach him any way we want to. But that in his grace and mercy, he has provided the way for us to come through him, which is through Jesus Christ. And we cannot go against his word and create another path. It will be to our demise and the demise of our lineage. Now we're moving from that disturbing story where they went in and destroyed an unsuspecting innocent people and took over their land to the story of another Levite. A Levite who had a concubine in Judges chapter 19. This story is extremely disturbing. 
And there's a little bit of um, discrepancy in what some of the theologians believe this concubine did. <clears throat> some believe that she actually had an affair, was immoral with someone, and fled for her life back to her father's home. But there are some translations that say, actually, it's not a clear translation there. And it literally means that she was insolent toward him, angry toward him, and she fled, which may have been running for her life. She may have been fleeing abuse. Because a concubine was not given the rights of a wife. They were more like, a proper, like property, a slave, probably a sex slave for this Levite. How corrupt can we get? So four months goes by and he decides, you know what, I think I'm going to go back and get her. And he speaks kindly to her and her father because hospitality was part of their culture, invites him in and he, you notice he's being overly gracious. <laughs> like he is really pouring it on thick. Why? Because his wife leaving him, it, it could have been her death. He could have demanded her death. And so he's being extremely gracious and caring for him and talks to him to staying longer and longer and longer. And finally on the fifth day, he says, we have to leave. He's leaving and he, he's, it's starting to get dark and his manservant says, oh, let's stop here. And he says, no, let's don't stop there. That's a Canaanite city. Instead, let's go to Gibeah. That's a city of the Benjamites. We'll be protected there because of this culture of hospitality. Somebody will take us in and we'll be safe. So he comes to the city center and nobody comes out to invite them in, Right. And finally, there's an old man from Ephraim who comes into the city who's been working in the fields, and he sees them there, and he says, oh, come to my home. Do not spend the night in the city. What does that sound like? <laughs> Don't spend the night in the city. Come into my home, and we know exactly what's going to happen. Some of the wicked men of the city come. They're banging on the door. They want this guest to come out because they want to sodomize him. It is reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see the depravity that has come into a people who live the way they desire, where everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. They're not living according to the word of God. So they want the man, but what does the old man say? Oh, no, you can't have him. That would be terrible. Instead, take my virgin daughter and his concubine. What does that tell us about the value of women? A few weeks ago, I had a statement on our handout that says, as a society goes, so goes its treatment of women and children. A society that honors God and his word values every person created in the image of God. A society that begins to live for itself and its own pleasure begins to see those who cannot defend themselves as commodities something to be consumed for their pleasure. And that's exactly how they saw these two women. The Levite gives the men his concubine. They ravage her all night long. She makes her way back to the house, falls at the threshold, uneven, unable to even knock on the door. The Levite goes to bed evidently unconcerned gets up the next morning to go on his way, opens the door to leave, and there lies his concubine. Is he moved with compassion? What does he do? Get up. Get going. She doesn't move. He picks her up, puts her on his donkey, and goes home. And when he gets back home, he's so disturbed because of what has happened to his property that he cuts her up into 12 pieces and ships the body parts out all across Israel. 
Well, we know when the people get it, they're, oh, they're enraged and they gather together as one person. It took, it took something this atrocious for the people to come together. But once again, they're not upset over what's happened to the woman. They're upset over what's happened to the Levite's property. And how does he tell the story? Puts himself in pretty good light, doesn't he? They were trying to kill me, and they even took my concubine and ravaged her. Leaves out the little detail that he gave her to them to protect himself. We're appalled, and rightfully so. That is horrific. And yet, in the United States of America, almost 3,000 babies will today be dismembered. And many of them, their body parts will be sold to pharmaceutical companies, cosmetic companies, to pad the pockets of Planned Parenthood and businesses that have been created to profit. The LA Times had an article about a settlement that was reached in case you see on the internet that this is not true. There are two companies who actually were found guilty. Two bioscience companies have reached a $7.785 million settlement with the Orange County District Attorney's Office over allegations that they illegally sold fetal tissue to companies around the world, prosecutors said Friday. According to the settlement signed Monday, DV Biologics LLC and sister company Da Vinci Biosciences LLC, both based in Yorba Linda, must cease all operations in California within 60 to 120 days. The agreement also requires the companies to admit liability for violations of state and federal laws prohibiting the sale or purchase of fetal tissue for research purposes, prosecutors said, and how sterile fetal tissue sounds when it is actually baby body parts and organs. Or what about the debate this year in Washington over infanticide, that a baby born after a botched abortion can be left alone to die? It's shocking but tragically flows from the abortion industry's advocacy for late-term abortion in states like New York and Virginia. In fact, the New York Senate passed a bill in January of this year that includes the most significant expansion of abortion rights in the state in almost 50 years. The Democratic-controlled Senate voted 38 to 24 to pass the Reproductive Health Act on the 46th anniversary of the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark Roe v. Wade ruling that states can't ban abortion. This law would give women the right to an abortion after 24 weeks if a fetus is no longer viable or if a woman's life or health is at risk. And the penalty for murder if a child was aborted after 24 weeks was removed from law. And many of you probably saw on social media the celebration and applause in the Senate chamber when it passed. Well, there has been a response to that. And the Born Alive Survivors Protection Act seeks to protect children who survive an attempted abortion procedure and are born alive. If passed, the new law would require that abortion survivals be reported to law enforcement by the medical staff involved and that the surviving child be treated with the same level of medical care standard for any other child born prematurely. Okay, so number one, that this child is 
it's actually um, reported, but also that the child gets care like you would treat any other child. That's not a lot to ask. According to the bill's sponsor, Representative Wagner, this legislation also takes the critical step to give the mother of the abortion survivor a civil cause of action and protection from prosecution so the woman would not be prosecuted, recognizing that women are the second victims of abortion and promoting the dignity of motherhood. The vote failed 53 to 44 in the Senate in February and has not yet been resurrected. So what are we to do with this? We are no different, are we? We're no different than the people in the period of the judges. And so I want us to look briefly at the plight of women in Judges. Let's go back to Judges chapter 1. And let's look at the first woman that we're introduced to, Oxa, Caleb's daughter. In fact, let's begin in verse 11. Then from there he went against the inhabitants of Deber. Now the name of Deber formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will even give him my daughter Oxa for a wife. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. So he gave him his daughter Oxa for a wife. Now what do we know about Othniel, the first judge? He was a good man. He was a righteous man. Then it came about when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. So she's given land. Then she alighted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Now contrast this at the beginning of the period of the Judges with what we just saw at the end of the book of Judges. She's respected. She's gifted. She has a righteous husband. She's given land. She's given springs of water. Now, turn to chapter 4. And who do we see? Deborah. Deborah, the judge, the woman who was a leader, who gave judgment, who ruled Israel literally from the palm of Deborah. She was a prophetess. God spoke to her and spoke through her. She led Barak into a military victory that is celebrated in chapter 5. There's another woman that is celebrated in chapters 4 and 5. Jael, the woman who actually defeated their enemy with a tent peg. And she is applauded and she is remembered. But then we jump to Judges 19 and we have the concubine. But go to Judges chapter 20 because things don't get any better. <clears throat> so the people are upset. They've gathered together. They're appalled at what's happened to this concubine, to this Levite's property. And so they gather together and they're going to go to war against Benjamin. But they send a message and they say, if you will just send the guilty parties out, we'll just destroy them. Well, the Benjamites are not about to do that because blood's thicker <laughs> than water, right? They're going to stick together and they're going to rally the troops and they're going to come against the rest of Israel. And that's exactly what they do. It says in verse 21, Then the sons of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and fell to the ground on that day, 22,000 men of Israel. So the first time they go out, what happens? They, they kill 22,000 men of Israel. They win. And then they come out a second time, and they defeat 18,000 men. And then in verse 26, the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel, and they wept 
Thus they remained there before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening. They're finally turning back to God and saying, what do we do? And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. The sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. They'd actually even brought the Ark of the Covenant there. And, the, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, Aaron's son, stood before it to minister in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. Now both are being punished. Israel's being punished because of their depravity, and Benjamin is being punished as well. So Israel set men in ambush, ambush they go against them. And look at verse 35. The Lord struck Benjamin before Israel, so that the sons of Israel destroyed, destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day, all who draw the sword. So how many men are left over in Benjamin? 600. And so then they begin to mourn, because now one of the 12 tribes of Israel is about to be wiped out. Because like we've seen at other times, they made a rash vow that anybody who gave their daughter to a Benjamite to marry because they were so upset with them, you know, would, they would destroy. So none of them could give their daughters in marriage. You've got 600 men with nobody they can marry within the Israelites. And then they go, wait a minute. Did anybody not go out with us? Was anybody not in on the vow? And they find out that there was. <laughs> there was a group of people. Um, Look at verse 5 in chapter 21. Then the sons of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. So if anybody in Israel doesn't come, we're going to put them to death. And they also had not taken the vow not to give their daughters in marriage. So the sons of Israel were sorry for their brother Benjamin and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were numbered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. And the congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors there and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, with the women and the little ones. This is not even just retaliation, following through on oath. This is genocide. They're wiping out everybody. This is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and every woman who has lain with a man. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word and spoke to the sons of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Ramon, and proclaimed peace to them. Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had kept alive from the women of Jabesh-Gilead, yet there were not enough for them. So there's 200 more men who did not have wives, right? So they still have a predicament. So they start thinking again. So what do we need to do? Oh, yeah, you remember when we have this festival, this celebration, and all the young virgins come out to dance and worship the Lord. We'll tell the Benjamites, just go grab yourself a wife and take her home with you. And that way, technically, they won't be guilty because they didn't give their daughters to you. You took them. And we'll appease them and say, oh, no, no, don't retaliate because we don't want the tribe of Benjamin to be wiped out. Now, put yourself in the place of one of these women. 
Think about the 400 in Jabesh Gilead had just seen all of their family members, friends, and neighbors destroyed, killed, slaughtered. And then they're taken away captive to be wives of men they don't know. Taken away from family, never to see their home again. And then these 200 virgins that are kidnapped and taken by 200 of the Benjamites away from their family and home to be wives to these men. Do you see how we have moved further and further and further away from God's design of men and women created in the image of God? Of men who are protectors and providers and coverings for women and children? which is how God created them to be, that protection over them. And yet our own idolatry in America is destroying our daughters and our children. I included some statistics on here that you had actually a couple of weeks ago just because I kind of wanted you to have them all in one place. But we can see how women and children are now being treated as property, a commodity, something to be consumed by men. Look at just the three middle stats on these facts. Pornography has created an industry where the average age of the girls who enter that industry is 13 years old, a child. In 2018, over half, 51.6% of the criminal human trafficking cases active in the U.S. were sex trafficking cases involving only children. The average age a teen enters the sex trade in the U.S. is 12 to 14 years old. Many victims are runaway girls who were sexually abused as children. And we wonder why? We have skyrocketing rates of anxiety, depression, suicide. In fact, when you look at the leading causes of death in 15 to 34-year-olds, 15-year-olds should not have a care in the world. 15 to 34, the number one cause of death is accidents, but number two is suicide. 47,173 per year in the U.S., 129 per day, one every 12 minutes. Third is homicides. I'm sure you've read just in the last week how many shootings there were just in California alone. And they have one of the strictest gun regulation laws in the nation. And I don't care where you fall on, I mean, I think absolutely we need to have regulations for people who purchase guns. I get that. But it is not going to change anything if we don't change the heart. If God does not change the heart of the people, they will get access to guns. They will get access. They will be violent. So we're experiencing cultural decay just like the period of the judges because everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. There was a message by Tim Keller that he gave at Dallas Theological Seminary, Hendricks, Center, and he made an observation about our culture. And this is a powerful observation. He said, throughout history, all cultures have believed that truth was something out there that could be known. It was separate from us. That there had to have been a God, someone who has put everything into motion, and that there's truth that we can find and know. Feelings were internal. 
And if the truth is, here's an example, you shall not commit adultery, but I feel like I want to commit adultery, then I would bring my feelings in line with what was true. Now, how many times have we said that? Feelings are not truth. And we make decisions based on the truth of God's word, and eventually our feelings line up. That's historical truth. That's what people have believed forever, that truth is out here, and if what I'm feeling doesn't line up what we know, with what we know is true, then I've got to choose based on what is true and, until my feelings line up. He says, this is so powerful. We are the first culture in the history of the world where we are being told truth is within and on the outside are nothing but culturally constructed feelings. You find truth inside. You come out and you tell everyone, you have to accommodate me because I have found the truth. This is who I am and this is what is right or wrong for me. It's exactly what was happening in the book of Judges. It is the complete reverse of what has been traditionally understood. He said, if you talk to a Muslim or a Hindu, there's obviously some agreement that truth is without. We may disagree what that truth is, but we know that the truth is outside of us and can be discovered. The meaning of life was to be good, and we're to align our life with that sacred order. Our culture says exactly the opposite. The problem with the world is telling people they need to align with the truth. The solution is if every single person is able to define right and wrong for themselves and live as he or she seeks to live. In the period of the judges, there was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It's exactly what our culture is saying today. Do what is right for you. What is right for you may, mean, may not be what's right for me, but you be true to yourself. The culture of the past said the problem is the selfish, autonomous individual. We must connect with the truth. But now culture says every single person must be free to define right and wrong for themselves and live as he or she seeks to live. Our current culture says the answer is the autonomous individual. We are completely an individualistic culture, thinking we can do whatever we want to to satisfy whatever desire we have. I was emailing with a sweet friend this week, Joni Shankles, and um, she emailed back a quote from Blaise Pascal. It says, when everything is moving at once, nothing appears to be moving as on board ship. When everyone is moving toward depravity, no one appears to be moving. But when someone stops, he shows up the others by acting as a fixed point. What did Jesus say about the broad path that leads to destruction? Many are on it. Many are on it. But the gate is small and the path is narrow <clears throat> that leads to life. And few are those who find it. Why? Because it's so easy to get caught up in the flow of humanity that is moving away from God. Even as believers, to want to compromise to accommodate somebody else's lifestyle. But that is not our place. We do not have that authority. God, the creator of heaven and earth, is the authority. He is the only one who has the right to tell us how we are to live. But listen to what Joni said, because Jesus really is, he's that North Star that people navigate by. The North Star doesn't move. It's always in that same spot. 
Jesus is the north star for us. He is our fixed point. He is who we are to align our lives up with. But listen to her words. May we be brave enough to stop moving with the crowds, humble enough to stand in the grace of the cross, and rooted enough in the love of the Father to remain fixed points of hope for others on this journey. And may we see the crowds that pass with the eyes of Jesus, feeling his compassion for their distress, for it was once our own. What did Jesus do in Matthew 9, 36? It said when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. So what are we to do? Well, the early Christians lived in a culture just like ours. They lived in a culture that was all about providing sensual experiences and pleasure. I mean, a culture that can sit in a, in a theater and watch gladiators fight to the death or human people being dismembered by animals and applaud it. Yeah, I would say it's a per, pretty perverted and depraved culture. And yet the Christian church flourished there because they became that fixed point of truth that others were drawn to in the midst of the chaos and the anxiety that goes along with doing what is right in our own eyes. And so Tim Keller, in his message, gave five um, fixed points of the early church, five characteristics that I've given you as we close. He said, we need to reclaim the early church social project. Number one, they were the first multi-ethnic congregations because the Jewish temple was just for the Jews. If you were Gentile, you couldn't go in. And the church was Gentile and Jew, rich and poor, slave, Roman centurion. They were all welcome. They all came in because we're, there's no male or female Jew or Greek in Christ. It's all level at the foot of the cross. And so everyone is welcome. They were committed to the poor. We know that Jesus came to preach the good news to the poor. He said that himself many times. They ministered to people. It said that in the early church there was no need because everybody was being taken care of. People were selling land and possessions to be able to provide for each other. They never retaliated. They turned the other cheek. And I just went back this morning and looked at Acts 14 when Paul was stoned and pulled outside the city of Lystra and left as dead. And what does he do when he gets up? God brings him back up. I think he may, that may have been a near-death experience, which is when he saw the third heavens that he talks about. But what does he do? He gets back up and goes back into the city, and then the next day leaves and keeps preaching. Oh, if we could be that diligent, that faithful, that focused on the mission that God has called us to. They were pro-life. Romans were not pro-life. In fact, if you had a baby girl, it was completely okay for you to put her out on a trash heap and let her die through exposure to the elements. And that's what they called it, exposure. Exposure. And they have, the church was a sexual counterculture. The Romans were incredibly immoral. They had slaves who were sexual property, boys and girls, men and women. And the church was pure. The church said, no, from the very beginning, God has said one man and one woman for life, becoming one flesh, serving him. It's a picture of the gospel. So they were completely countercultural in their makeup of the congregation, their commitment to the poor, the fact that they never retaliated or sought revenge. They were pro-life and they were a sexual counterculture. We live by a value system that is different from this world. But when you turn the page from the last page of Judges, you come to the book of Ruth. 
a beautiful story. What does it say? Now it came about in the days when the judges governed. And what do we know about the story of Ruth? Ruth is a Moabitess who goes home with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Bethlehem after the death of Naomi's husband and her two sons. And she refuses to leave her because she has become convinced that the God of the Israelites is the God of heaven and earth. And she goes back, and who notices her? Boaz, a righteous man, a kinsman redeemer who protects her, who provides for her, who covers her, who is a picture for us of the redeemer who was to come, who will provide for us who protects us, who covers us with his blood, our faithful King, Jesus.
Throne of endless glory to a crown.